Hey, this is Richie Fure from Buffalo Springfield, Poco, and the Souther Hillman Fure Band, and you're listening to Follow Your Dreams with Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream, and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream Podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream Podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I am Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is rock and roll legend, Jim Messina. He was a member of Buffalo Springfield, one of my favorite bands from the 60s. And then he and Richie Fure founded Poco, another great band, which introduced the whole country rock genre. And then he went on to partner with Kenny Loggins as half of the hit duo Loggins and Messina, who sold about 20 million records. Remember those days when records used to sell? How about that? <laughs> Since then, he's done reunion tours and solo work and a lot of other stuff. And in the middle of this interview, as I do with all my musical guests, Jim and I are going to do what I call a song fest. We're going to play a handful of his best works, and we're going to talk about them, and you'll get the backstories. And nobody else does this in podcasts, I can assure you. And you also know if you listen to this podcast, regularly that I feature a song of mine in every episode underneath the introduction and at the end and I always try to make that song relevant somehow to my guest and in this instance I went far afield a little bit because I chose a song that I wrote called The Night Was a Mystery it's an island flavored song and I chose it because it reminds me a bit of Vahivala one of Loggins and Messina's biggest hits. So I thought it worked. So Jim Messina, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby. Thank you, man. Good to see you. Or hear you. <laughs> you got to start out with a little bit of a confession, okay? I ripped you off, but it was inadvertent, okay? You wrote a song years ago called Follow Your Dreams. In fact, I'm going to be playing it right now underneath. So give it your best and don't you worry about what some may say Follow your dreams, it's really all that you can do And give it your best And remember that life is what you choose Go home, follow your dreams and do what you love to do And when I named this podcast, Follow Your Dream, I didn't think of that song at the time, but later I did. When I said to myself, I better keep quiet or Jim is going to ask me for royalties. So, Jim, will you let me off the hook? Absolutely. The, the This song was really written. I was doing a movie called Independence Day, and I was writing the um, the title tunes, uh, some of the songs in it. And this particular Follow Your Dreams was about the character who was, in fact, this was uh, David Keith's first film after Officer and a Gentleman. And he played a, a part of a, a young guy in the little town called Mercury, Texas. And uh, his girlfriend was a photographer. And uh, she had just graduated and she was ready to move to 
you know, New York or L.A. where she could actually start her career. And it turns out her mother's very sick. And um, she feels like she needs to stay home and be with her because she's in the process of dying. And of course, he's he's a Texan and he, he wants to get on with life and doesn't want her to leave. And there's all that conflict about, you know, do I follow my dream or do I stay here in this small town and take responsibility, you know, like most of us feel to take care of our parents and take care of our girlfriend or boyfriend. So that's the sort of the underlining part of it. But the song speaks uh, from to her heart about what she should do. And if you listen to the lyric from the standpoint of being a photographer or a musician or anything like that, you'll suddenly hear the resonance that uh, was in the character. So you're welcome to use it because that's exactly what the song was for. In fact, it was not a hit record, but was a incredibly hit record with the educationalists around the country, constantly getting letters of thank you. I play this song for my class. I like my students to hear it. It's 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 uplifting. And I asked them to, to write about what the song is about. So from the standpoint of what it was supposed to do, has done even better by by the young folks or anybody really who takes a listen to it. Well, you've just made me feel even better because now I'm following in the footsteps of a great song by a great artist. And you know what? The message resonates, okay? I'm somebody that decided later in life that I was going to follow my dream. And, you know, my tagline is you're never too old and it's never too late to follow your dream, whatever that may be. And uh, there's a lot of that out there that people can learn from. For sure. Well, and it's never easy and it's never free. That's exactly right. <laughs> All right. Let me go back to your Buffalo Springfield days. Okay. You came in kind of at the end of the group, the last album, if I understand correctly. And by the way, I always loved the name Buffalo Springfield. Okay. It was one of those aha moments for me. I grew up in New York City and there used to be all this construction going on in the streets. And I used to play in the construction areas. And one day I went down there and I see this gigantic machine. Buffalo Springfield. And I said, now I got it. Now I know where they got the name for that group. But tell us a little bit about your experience with the Springfield. Well, my experience with the Buffalo Springfield was I was working as a recording engineer at the time at Sunset Sound Recorders. And I had been uh, hired there to uh, run and operate the second studio that Tutti Camerata built. And uh, while I was there, I happened to be asked to come in earlier one morning to do a demo session with a with a client who had booked time, and Gypsy, who was the um, manager, I should say, of the of the studio at that time, said, uh, "You know, Jimmy, can you come in tomorrow morning at, at ten o'clock?" And I said, uh, "Yeah, well, what do you have in mind?" She says, "Well, we have somebody here who wants to do a demo. It's a simple demo, voice and guitar." I said, "Oh, I, I said, who, who is it?" And she goes, uh, "It's David Crosby." And I went, "David Crosby?" I said, "Is that Bing Crosby's son?" She says, I don't think so. And I wouldn't bother to ask if I were you. It's just be here at 10. I said, okay. So I show up at 10 and he's there. And uh, he says, what I'm going to do is do a demo. I want you to set up a microphone, um, you know, maybe a, a Neumann or a Telefunken, something that's really nice for voice and guitar. And then I want you to plug this in. I said, what is that? He says, it's a lamp. I said, a lamp. And I looked at it, it's full of goo. I said, what kind of lamp is this? And he goes, it's a lava lamp. Just plug it in and... And when it gets warm, I want you to turn the lights out because this my artist doesn't like having a lot of light when they work. And I thought, well, maybe she's blind or he's blind. Or... So I said, okay, set it all up. 
So the artist comes in and happens to be a woman and uh, I get her all set up and I go in the turn out the lights and go in the control room and I said, okay, we're starting. And, you know, I press the record and she sings the song and, and a really nice tune. And then we sing another and we, we probably recorded nine or 10 songs that day and, and probably an hour and a half. She was so good. And I had never heard anybody play the tuning that tunings that she had, they were very different. And, uh, and she was very attractive. And I was, you know, I think it was 19 years old and a little bit schmitten about it. Cause that was the days when the girls that used to play guitar and sing, they were always, you know, so enchanting and mesmerizing. And, and um, so anyway, the session's over. And I said, who should I put down as, you know, as producer? And he says, David Crosby. So I write down on that tape box, David Crosby. And I'm thinking, should I ask or, or not? And I'm, oh, you better not. Uh, and who's who's the uh, who's the artist? And he says Joni Mitchell. And I said okay, so I wrote down Joni Mitchell. So my first experience was working with David Crosby, who had been working with the Buffalo Springfield, and he liked the job that I had done on, on Joni. And, and of course that that was the that was the demo that really got her album uh, at uh, Warner's or whoever she was working with at that time. May I ask what were some of the songs, if you remember? You know, I, I can't I can't remember, but it was it was many of the songs around her first album, but whatever her first album had. Remarkable, huh? And and, and then David uh, went, you know, to Neil. I think it was Neil he had spoken to and said, "Hey, listen, I just did a demo over at um, Sunset with a young engineer there. He's really the youngest one there." He said, "If you get a chance to book in there, you may want to try working with him." So they booked in, um, and I think they booked in first with a guy named Bill Lazarus, who's a really good engineer, but different than who they were as people, and um, I, I should say in lifestyle. So then Gypsy came in and said, yeah, I'd like you to maybe take over this session. So I started working with the Springfield early on. It was, it was I thought Neil was the producer because he was the first one I met. And they had a whole lot of tapes that they brought over from Columbia Records, which Ahmed Erdogan had produced, or their previous producer, Charlie Green and Brian Stone. I don't know exactly, but I do know they were recorded at Columbia, and, and uh, Ahmed's name was on, on some of the tapes. So anyway, we went through those tapes, and um, you know, he told me what he wanted to do. And then later I met Stephen, who was quite different than, than Neil. Uh, Neil seemed to be the one who wanted to know where everything goes and how it works. And Stephen was just impetuous in the groove, wanted to record immediately, if not sooner, which is the artist he is. And then eventually I met everybody individually and began working with them. That was really my first entree into working with the Springfield. And from there it evolved to me finishing their, their second album, Buffalo Springfield, again, putting all the pieces together. They worked pretty much individually and collectively, depending on the mood, I guess, uh, of, of the interaction and their relationship, because I didn't know much about the band, just other than being a recording engineer and helping them to get their record done. It wasn't until um came in again and booked me for their third album. We began working on that, and um, I get a call from Ahmed Erdogan, and he asked me, he said, you know, I, the boys have said they like working with you, they need a producer, would you consider producing them? And um, I thought about it. It was 11 o'clock at night when he called me. I was living in Burbank, so it had to be, what, one or two in the morning in New York. And um, 
I, I thought about it because I'd produced other records. I'd had I'd had a hit record with a group called the Deep Six called the Rising Sun out of LA and had been producing since I was, you know, 15 years, 16 years of age. And I thought, you know, yeah, I'd like to do that. I like these guys. I like their music. And uh, so I accepted the the opportunity, started working on their record. And then their bass player, Bruce Palmer, really enjoyed the spirits. Uh, regrettably, he enjoyed the ones that uh, got you in a lot of trouble with the law yeah. and got himself deported. So um, now they need a bass player. Of course, the Buffalo Springfield knew nothing of who I never divulged that I was a musician. Um, they had no idea. That's not in my personality to do that. But over the years, I you know, performed a, a, on a lot of the records where I'm just playing myself guitar and drums and doing all the overdubs. And uh, I had built a studio along with Mike Durow, who was a recording engineer at the time. And when I decided I didn't want to be a, a musician anymore because I wasn't good enough, which was around 1960 late 65, early 66, I had apprenticed under him as an engineer. And one of the things that I learned to do was to assist him in building recording studios. And we built a studio for Joe Osborne, who could not afford to pay me. So I said to him, you know, I'm happy to assist Michael if you assist me. And he said, well, how could I do that? And I said, well, I want you to just help me once in a while around on the bass so I understand the instrument more. And and he said, yeah, I'd be happy to help you. So when I had time, he was around. He'd sit down 10, 15 minutes with me and show me the instrument and how he liked to play and why and the amp and the bass. And so I had been learning to play bass on my own recordings when I was producing my own artists. So they said they were going to need to get a bass player. And I said, you know, I raised my hand. I said, do you mind if I audition too? And they go, you? And I said, yeah. They go, yeah, well, Neil said, yeah, if you want to. So they had an audition over at the old Moulin Rouge building, I think is what it was. There's about 13 people, of which I was one and the last one to audition. And uh, I remember getting up there and um, nervous and, you know, I plugged in and we started to play. And after about 8, 10, 12 bars, Stephen turned around and looked at me and went, whoa, because I was playing the parts exactly the way they were, they were written and recorded. And he got this look on his face. Wow. And I, I thought to myself, Jiminy Christmas, why shouldn't I? I mean, sitting with these songs for almost two years, for Christ's sakes, right? So anyway, got the job. And um, now suddenly I'm their bass player, engineer, and producer. So that was really the entree into me working as, as much as I did with the Buffalo Springfield touring and recording. What's so interesting is the way you kind of climb the ladder there, starting out as an engineer, and you get to be the producer. And then you had the advantage of knowing the music, so you get to be the bass player. That was a very clever idea on your part. Well, it, it wasn't planned. It was somewhat serendipitous, but... It worked. Everything in my life has not come easy. But what I have learned is that uh, nothing's ever easy. It's never free. But luck is really just being prepared when opportunity knocks. And so over the years, um, I try to be prepared. I shouldn't say that. I work to be prepared so that when the time comes and it's time to deliver, I'm there. You're there. Let me ask you a question. Were you a Boy Scout when you were younger? I was a Cub Scout. Because you know the Boy Scout motto, be prepared. 
never got that far, but I must <laughs> I must have anticipated it. <laughs> All right, that sounds good. All right, so Buffalo Springfield kind of comes to an end. You and Richie Fure decide to start Poco. And I'm interested in whose idea was it? Was it yours or was it his? And I heard a story. You got to tell me whether this is true, because it sounds like a crazy story, that you guys set out to name the group Pogo after the comic strip. But you got some flack from the guy that actually created the comic strip. So you renamed it Poco. Any of that true? Yeah. Yeah, it was Walt Kelly. Uh Actually, how it started out from my point of view, of course, everybody has a different experience of what they do, is that Richie and I were in the back seat of a taxi cab going to a music store one time, and we hadn't quite finished Buffalo Springfield, but we knew it was ending. And uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I know I, I like what I had just done. Uh, so I asked Richie, I said, what are your plans after Springfield? And he says, I don't know. You know, I'm just trying to get through this part right now. And I said, well, you know, my thoughts would be, I mean, you, you've written songs like, you know, Child's Claim to Fame and written songs like Kind Woman. I said, you know, they're very country-based, country-influenced. I said, um, you know, what if we were to work together and uh, maybe do something that's instead of country rock, because that's obviously already been done. I mean, excuse me, uh, country folk. I said, that that's already been done, and folk music was really on its way out. And I said, what about if we could it consider doing something more country rock, you know? And that came from me having already experienced working before the Buffalo Springfield. Mike and I, as I said, we built studios together. Well, we built a studio on Sunset Boulevard near Vermont in around 1966 for a couple of musicians by the name of Al Jones and Sonny Jones. They were from Shreveport, Louisiana. And they had a, an investor from Texas was willing to build a studio. So they engaged the two of us to build a studio for them, which when we finished um, the first demo or the opening of it was to record some of their friends who we had no idea who their friends were, right? Shreveport, Louisiana is where James Burton came from, where Joe Osborne came from. I believe Dorsey Burnett. So who shows up? James Burton, Joe Osborne. Dorsey Burnett, Roger Miller, Keith Allison, Jerry Allison of the Crickets. And I could go on. You had the whole crew. But all my favorite rockabilly musicians and players that I'd listened to as a kid or watched on TV were in that room as we were recording that night. And I have to tell you, I was just in seventh heaven because I grew up in Texas on my mother's side. You know, they were very much into my stepfather was from Arkansas. They were into Johnny Cash, you know, Hank Williams, Hank Snow. My father was more into the country swing. So he was into Bob Wilson, the Texas, you know, Playboys. He was into Spade Cooley, you know, the Western swing artists, um, Chet Atkins, uh, Merle Travis, Joe and Rosalie Mathis, all of those players, the Collins kids. So I grew up with that as my it's what I listened to. Of course, the Buffalo Springfield had no clue about that because I never talked about it. I'm not there to promote myself. I have found over the years when I work with people that are self-promoting, I, I don't know whether they're trying to teach me something, they're trying to buy something. But when we're there to work, we're there to work. It's not about who I am. It's about what am I here to do? Because 
It's about servitude. How do I serve you? How do you serve me professionally in a way to get the job done? So when I asked Richie, what about country rock? That's what I grew up with. <laughs> See, I really think the real country rock people were the James Burtons. You know, they, they were the Buck Owens. They were that elk of musicians that were just coming up with us, but paralleling us in another dimension. Yeah, but you you took it further. I mean, you changed the sound, okay? I understand that that was the background, but they weren't quite where you were. And uh, to your credit, you got it to a whole different place. Well, it was a suggestion. And so when Richie said, you know, I, I, you know, let me, I'll think about it, you know, putting a band together with that idea in mind. But it wasn't until after we went to New York, we were recording, still working on the Buffalo Springfield album. And uh, we went to New York because the guys just couldn't get together in the studio. They, they just were just too preoccupied with other things going on. And so I asked Ahmed, I said, what do you think? You know, how can we get these guys all in one place and get this job done? Because that's what he wanted to do. He said, well, let's bring them to New York. He said, we got a studio here. There's a hotel right across the street. You know, there, there's nothing for them to do here, but just work. I said, I said I'm, I'm for it. Let's do it. So we brought everybody to New York. And um, I mean, I recall getting out the airplane. And I'm looking around for Neil. I don't, I don't see Neil anywhere. Uh, maybe he's going to be on the next flight. And, you know, I saw, you know, Richie was there with me. And uh, I saw Dewey because he had his friend's jacket on. Of course, then Stephen was way ahead of us with his cowboy hat on. So I figured most of us were here and, you know, Neil will show up. Well, the day of the session, we were going to record Richie's stuff, one of which was Kind Woman. Kind Woman and also uh, Carefree Country Day. Nobody shows up. So I went to Arif and I said, Arif, I said, I'm not sure what's happening, but guys are here, but they're not showing up. And I said, I really want to get this job done. Hold on. Let me interrupt for a second. For anybody that doesn't know, Ahmed Erdogan and Arif Martin were two of the guys that ran Atlantic Records, which was one of the key labels at this time. So please go ahead. So Ahmed says to me, let me get Arif involved in here. Arif says to me, he says, Jimmy, he says, I'll get you some of the you know best musicians in New York. Don't worry about it. When do you want them? And I said, well, immediately, if not sooner. He says, I'll get them over here for you tomorrow. So they show up. And of course, you know, Richie doesn't write music. You know, I, I wrote all the charts out that needed to be written. So I gave everybody their charts. And we started playing. And I just went, oh, this piano player is trying to sound like Floyd Cream, <laughs> which is, you know, that these guys were jazz cats. They weren't, you know, they weren't country cats. They were jazz cats. And I thought to myself, well, you know, that's okay. That's an interpretation because they think we're doing country music because of what the song sounds like. So I just made sure the charts were right and made sure that everybody played the right parts and let them express themselves. So we, we get back and I'm listening to Chine Woman. And I said to Richie, I said, you know, this just didn't come out the way I'd hoped it would come out. I said, these guys are all playing well, but we need something in here to make this feel more like Buffalo Springfield. And since we'd hired... James Burton to come in and play Dobro on Child's Claim to Fame. I thought, you know what, let's try to find a steel guitar player. So I suggested, you know, Tom Brumley, Red Rhodes, uh, Buddy Emmons. And it just so happened our guitar tech at the time says to me, 
You know, I know a guy in um, Colorado that I've worked with. He's about your age, young guy, and uh, really plays steel well. And, and uh, you know, perhaps you would consider that. And I said, well, that's going to be expensive. And he says, well, the studio guys, you know, they charge triple scale. And in those days, it probably would have cost us 700 bucks to get one of those guys to play for a session. And hell, hotel rooms are only 25 bucks a night. And you could fly somebody from Denver for $80. $80. I thought, why not? Let's Maybe that's the most frugal way in which to try it out. So we flew him in. And um, he was very excited about performing. They drop his steel off the airplane and break it. So by the time we open it up, it's not functioning. So I said to him, I said, you know, Stephen bought a bought a steel wall we were on the road and it's over sitting in here in Sunset Sound. I said, you know, we can use that. And of course he says, okay. So we set it up and there's some things that are not working. And he gets under there and twists this and it's got a bunch of wires and and I'll tell you the rest of the story later. But he um, we finally get it set up in the studio and I'm having a hard time getting a sound. I said, look, why don't we bring this thing in the control room? You can sit here or we'll plug in directly into the board. And we do. We make one pass. And I'm thinking, wow, this sounds pretty good. I said, I, I think we're ready to go. So I press record. And as we're listening to the first pass, I look over to Richie and I said, wow. I said, you remember that conversation we had in the backseat of that taxi cab about maybe instead of doing folk rock, we might be able to do country rock. I said, this, I think this guy might be able to do that for us. So we were still working on the Buffalo Springfield. The guy happens to be Rusty Young, who we bring in from Colorado. We record him. We get the album finished and group breaks up. And Richie and I decide, let's let's bring out Rusty. And uh, Rusty had a, had a drummer friend in Bonsai Creek, which was George um, Grantham. And he said he sings really high and we needed a high singer. So let's bring him out and give him a try. So we started rehearsing. And that was the beginning of what Poco was going to become. We had no name at that point in time. We were just seeing if we could take the songs that we had written individually and collectively and, and get something going on it. About that time, we just we decided again, Ricky Nelson, Randy Meister was playing bass for the Stone Canyon band. And Rusty knew him from his days in Colorado because Randy was in Kansas. And of course, they'd, the, the borders are so close and the musicians are far and few. So you're going to know if there's a player there. You're going to know who they are, which Rusty did. So we uh, contacted uh, Randy, Brian over for rehearsal some songs. He said, yeah, I'd like to be in the band. So that is the beginning of Poco. George Grantham, Rusty Young, myself, Randy Miser, and Richie. Interesting story. Richie tells about how, um, I think one of the first songs you guys recorded was his picking up the pieces, which for him at least was that transition between, you know, the Buffalo Springfield kind of falling apart and you guys resurrecting this new band called Poco. Yeah, I think that's that's true. I mean, that was his uh, the the feelings that he got from moving from one to the other was it was uh, picking up the pieces was definitely that song. To answer your other question, we had just not was getting ready to do our first performance at the Troubadour. It was our then manager who had suggested calling the group Pogo P O G O because he thought that would be a great noon because there was a lot of 
artists using cartoon character names at that time, which I did not think was a great idea. Anyway, I didn't want to be a cartoon character. I wanted to have some individuality like the Buffalo Springfield had their own thing. Anyway, it's the night of the performance and they're putting up P.O.G.O. And literally, I think an hour, an hour and a half before we were supposed to go on, we get a, a lawsuit from Walt Kelly. And I think it was a suspend and assist or something like that. Right, right. Uh, you will not use that name. That belongs to me. That's an infringement of copyright. And I will sue you for everything you have, including your guitars and amps. And we just all freaked. And uh, I think it was Dickie who looked up on the marquee as they get ready to take it down. He goes, wait, take that G off and put a C in there. Because it'll look the same as what we've been advertising, but it won't have the tail on it. <laughs> so, and I went, Poco. And of course, you know, Poco, that, that's small. That's a small name. <laughs> so I had never sat well with me. I, I, I But, you know, I think Dickie was doing the best he could at the time with under the circumstances trying to make things work. But he was right. To change the G to a C, you just got to get rid of that little tail on the G. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it was, it was funny but brilliant at the same time. Hi, everybody. I'm Robert Miller, your host. As you know by now, I'm a professional musician in addition to hosting this Follow Your Dream podcast. In fact, I just released my 13th album, all since I followed my dream after I turned 60. The album is called It's Alive, and it's a live recording by my band, Project Grand Slam, featuring 13 of our greatest hits recorded at festivals in Pennsylvania and Serbia. The reviewers have called it a masterpiece and an instant classic. I introduced this album through a podcast episode, which has now been downloaded by thousands of listeners from over 120 countries, which shows the power and worldwide reach of this podcast. When I began the podcast, I had no idea where it would go. But here we are, just over two years later, and the podcast is ranked in the top 1% with listeners in 200 countries. It's been a joyride for me, my guests, and for my thousands of listeners. If you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to the podcast so you get each episode when it airs. And you must visit our website at followyourdreampodcast.com to check out all of our episodes, our famous guests, and much more. I want to thank you for listening and keep on rocking. All right. I want to get to the uh, Songfest portion, but before we get there, I want you to talk a little bit about your logins in Messina days because again if i understand correctly you started off kind of as a producer of a kid named kenny loggins and that morphed into a duo am i correct yeah after i left poco i had finished the last album which was delivering 
And in the process of wanting to leave, I had met with Clive Davis. Actually, we had a, a train ride. And uh, I told him I wanted to get back to my production work. I mean, I lived two blocks from CBS Studios, and I'd just gotten married. And I was I was just tired of the problems of being in a group. I mean, not only personality issues, but, you know, you've got to fact that trying to get a record promoted and getting it sold. In those days, we were we were two rock for country stations and two country for rock stations. They just wouldn't play the music. And the most I had ever made, I think, was about 125 bucks a week to support a wife and and and, and household on it. It was just getting difficult. This was our third record. And uh, I had actually had written a song called You Better Think Twice, and it started to chart about the time I was leaving. And uh, while I thought, I, I just, I'm not feeling comfortable in this arrangement. So I, I had asked the guys, I'd like to leave. And Clive said, you know, that's fine. He said, just make sure that when you do leave, you leave under good, you know, uh, under good conditions and do what you need to support them and to get this record on the charts. I said, that's absolutely acceptable. So I asked the guys to pick somebody that they thought could replace me. And they picked Paul Cotton, who I thought was a great choice. In fact, uh, Paul Cotton and I were room, roommates for about two weeks. We stayed in the same hotel room as we were on tour so I could teach him the parts and get him comfortable. And, and we remained friends up to his death. So when that time came and I was ready to leave, you know, Clive had said to me, he said, you know, I, you did a great job and I, I appreciate that. Let's talk about it. So I had my attorney talk to them about being an independent producer with him, made a deal. And right, right after the summer there, I started getting artists sent to me from CBS. One was was Andy Andy Williams. And Andy Williams had always been one of my favorite artists, uh, singer, I should say, loved his singing. And I said, you know, I, I, I'm not the right person for him. I said, this guy needs someone who's more familiar with orchestrations and working with the union and the violin players and conductors and all that stuff. He, he needs a, a more educated producer than I am. I can get him the sound, but I'm certainly not going to get what he needs. And being a musician and an arranger myself and having worked with many of these people, I just was not the right person. So then they um, they submitted uh, to me, uh, um, Olivia Newton-John came. I met with her, lovely lady, really good material. And again, the direction that she needed to go in, in my opinion, was not a direction that I was comfortable. I'm not... I was not, and I'm still not interested in making records that are pop hit stuff. That's a whole different world. This was before her first album? Yes. Yes. Then I got submitted Danny Fogelberg. That came out of Columbia. In fact, it was Bonnie Garner who had sent me that artist. And I had sat with him, and I really was enjoying his you know, his tunes and his ideas and his thoughts. And so I asked him, I said, so why why are you thinking that I should be your producer? You know, I think it's an important question for you to ask yourself and really an important answer for me to hear. And he said, well, I'm going to be honest with you. I said, I hope so. He says, I want to make a Poco record. I love the Poco. I love what you did with Poco. And at that moment, I thought to myself, I never made more than 125 bucks a week in, with the original thing. 
And I said, I, I got to tell you something. I said, um, making a poker record is not something I want to do. And I'll tell you why. I said, one of the reasons why I left poker is because the music was too, you know, country for rock stations and too rock for country stations. And if that's an area that you want to compete in, you need to find somebody else because I've already ridden that horse into the ground. So I passed. Then Kenny Loggins came along. The idea I was still I was still actually in in New York when Don Ellis had suggested that I meet with him. He was a friend of his, his friend Dan Loggins, and he worked at Discount Records together. And he had a little brother that he thought was pretty talented and thought maybe I should, you know, meet him. And I said, Well, let's wait till I get back to California and I'm I'm out of the Poco. I've done my job. Uh, he said, well, he has tapes. I said, great, have him bring the tapes and we'll listen to him. So the night finally comes. I get a call from Kenny himself. And he said, hey, my, name, my name's Kenny Loggins. And my brother Dan said that uh, maybe you'd like to hear some of my music. And I said, yeah. I said, I, Don Ellis, right? He goes, oh, yeah, yeah, they're, they're pals. And he, I said, well, yeah, come on over. I made an appointment. And come over and have a little dinner. We'll have some tacos and talk and see what's going on. So... I never met him, at least I didn't know that I had until I first saw him at my front door. Anyway, knock on the door, opens the door, and here's this really tall guy with long hair with a part on the side, a big fuzzy beard, and braces on his teeth, wearing a velour shirt and a pair of jeans that um, were a little baggy in the bottom. Might have been one of the soggy bottom boys of, of the days. And he, hi, my name's Kenny Loggins. And he comes in and I'm thinking to myself, whoa, sit down. And, and I'm asking myself, they want this guy to do rock and roll? <laughs> uh, okay. So I said, we talked a little bit. He was very nice and happy and good personality. I said, so uh, let's listen to one of your tapes. And uh, he says, I ain't got no tapes. I said, that will uh, Don said you had some tapes for me to listen to. And I said, well, I, I don't have any with me. And I said, okay. I said, well, why don't you grab your guitar and let me hear some of your tunes? He said, well, I don't own a guitar. Thinking about these guys putting that. This has got to be a joke because I know Don and he likes to be practical jokes, you know, and I'm, I'm wondering, is my wife in on this or what's going on? So at that moment, I just really felt awkward. So I said, well, I'll tell you what. I said, I have a guitar or two over here in the closet. I said, how about, uh, what would you prefer? Acoustic? He goes, yeah, yeah. I said, steel string or cat gut? He said, yeah, nylon one's good. So I reached over there, grabbed a guitar, and I had a little recording a Sony T850 sitting in the room there with two mics that I used for myself. And I had a little leather stool. I brought it up in front of the mics. I said, sit here. Here's a guitar. I'm going to press record, sing into the mics. So he sang Danny's song, House of Pooh Corner. I think he did the Hilo. Santa Rosa, My Love's Gonna Tumble on You, a couple of other tunes. And um, we had some tacos and chatted, and uh, he left. And my wife, Jenny, at the time says, well, what do you think? And I said, man, I don't know what to think. I said, I... I love his voice, and uh, but his songs are really folky. I mean, we're not even there anymore. I mean, folk music is gone. We were listening to Dave Mason, 
Leon Russell and Delaney and Bonnie. And, you know, that that's the stuff that was happening. And I said, I'm going to have to think about it. I said, I feel bad because I've turned down some artists already <laughs> that have been submitted to me. Hell, I'm three quarters of the way through the year and I haven't even done, you know, haven't produced anything. So I thought about it. I liked his voice. And I so I invited him back. And so we started, you know, recording some more of his tunes and and I started working with him and um, started some ideas on rearranging some of the material like House of Pooh Corner had always been, well, it was a hit first with the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, but it was really a up-tempo boom, one of those kind of things, which totally is like standing on two plates of the earth, one moving in one direction and, and one is the lyrics are talking about one thing and the music is is going in another direction. So I made some suggestions to him, to be honest with you, to, I mean, see if he was a good player. I need to, can he play an instrument? So I started working on House of the Corner with him as more of a an ethereal, spatial kind of moody song that might appeal more to the child in, in us as humans and to children. And so I suggested in the middle, we put this Baroque section in, which was, if you know, I mean, you've heard it, it probably was uh, boom, da, do, 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 and it was playing in counterparts. Right. I figured if he could do that, you know, he could play, and we we did it, and we worked it, it sounded great. Back to the house that you call by one You'd be surprised there's so much to be done Long story short, as I began to work with him more and more, I began to really like him as a person. He was a hard worker. He never said, no, I can't do that, or I don't like that. It was always, let's try it. Let's see if it's going to work, which is what you want when you're working with an artist, especially when you're trying to develop uh, you know, a personality. When I say personality, really, someone that people are going to be drawn to musically, lyrically. He was a hard worker. And so I decided that I would take that project on. But I, but I didn't realize how much work it was going to because he never had a manager. He, he, you know, I was his first producer. His brother was getting him a lawyer. He had no business manager. There was a lot of work that needed to be done if he was going to make an album for CBS. Because making an album is one thing. But what do you do with it after it's made? And that's where the real work is. That's having a manager, an agent, a business manager, and putting all that stuff together so that once you get out on the road, you can promote the product that you're making. And that also means getting a band. It also means having employees like a tour manager. In, in our case, it was be more of a road manager and a, you know, a couple of roadies to help load the crap. Yeah. So this was an incredible undertaking that I didn't realize how much work it was going to be until I got in the midst of it and realized that 
I didn't want to let him down. You know, he had to have that opportunity to do it right and have honest people working with him. And and I, I think we managed to put together a crew and a team and a band that uh, he complained a lot about having to rehearse so much. Uh, in fact, to the point of extremely getting upset about it and coming to me. And I said, look, I'll tell you what, we'll just rehearse one more month. <laughs> and once that album was submitted to uh, Clive Davis, he loved it. And of course, it was on the charts for 400 and some weeks. And by that time, I think they all got the idea that this stuff is never easy and it's never free. But when you do a good job on it, if you got the right promotion, the right people behind it, it's going to get the attention. And it did. Well, you know, to hear this whole saga from your first meeting with him, with the beard and the graces and no guitar and no tapes, and to see how that evolved or to know how it evolved, that's quite a story. Well, it's also the credit belongs uh, to Kenny, too, because he was a he was a, a hard worker and uh, most people wouldn't have wouldn't have put the time in that it took to get him where he was going. But he did. You transformed him. Good for you. All right. Let's go to the song fest portion. And the first song that we're playing right now underneath me is something called Mexican Minutes, I believe from watching the river run. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, Mexican Minutes for me was a song. My attorney at the time had made a deal with um, Almo Irving Music, which was owned by Herbie Albert's label, A&M Records. So I went to Nashville, which is where they were located, and, and uh, they wanted me to work with some Nashville writers, which I had never done before. So I get there, and David Conrad, who's running the company, uh, said, oh, yeah, I'll, I'd like to put together some writers with you. and and um, so he teamed me up with uh, this one particular person and uh, I said, oh, great. Where do we meet? I'm just, I'm in a hotel, you know, and I, should I go to his house? Ah, no, you come here to the, I said, what time? It's about nine o'clock. I said, nine. Okay. He says, everyone around here works from nine to five. He says, we got the studio. We got a place to write. You come in, work, leave, go home, live a normal life. I thought to myself, wow, I've never... <laughs> Never experienced anything I've like had that. that one before. That's a good one. <laughs> so I show up and we start writing some stuff. And I just, it was awkward. But, you know, I decided I would just throw out the ideas and what we were talking about. And we we, we threw around a, a few ideas. And by three days later, we had this song called Mexican Minutes. And I mean, I was surprised that it sounded as good as it did in terms of writing in that manner they submitted it to brooks and dunn and brooks and dunn loved it so they recorded it on their uh, one of their albums and uh over the years i've just sort of I, you know i recorded it too but i that was in what 1994 95 94 yeah my son was born in 92 he's 30 some years old now and recently i've, I've put it into the set because i figure it's a great song why not play it right 
and the audiences are loving it. So it's a uh, it's been a fun song to to uh, resurrect, and um, it has a freshness to it. And uh, and as with any good song, you know, you should be able to play it at any point in time, and it should resonate and still have you know have legs, as you might say. It is a fun song for sure. All right, let's go to the second one. This is "You Better Think Twice." You better think twice. Which to me, you know, is is right smack dab in that country rock genre. Would you agree? Yeah, and that's one of the reasons why I, I sent it to you because I sent you, with the exception of Mexican Minutes, live recordings. So you get a sense of the energy that's still in these songs and the way the audiences are reacting to them. And I think you'll probably hear in the background the, the hoops and the hollers, and people are still loving, um, you know, the arrangements and the music. But it is. Uh, First of all, it's it was the first song I wrote and really contributed to Poco's that I thought would be a hit single for them. And it, and it actually was was for them their first. But it also has Rusty Young playing on it, uh, even though it was recorded in 2015. I had encouraged Rusty after all the years that uh, we had spent together to he was going to he was going to retire from Poco. And I said, before you do, how about thinking about doing some solo work, making your own record? And he goes, well, I don't know if I want to do that. And I said, well. Why don't you just take a time? Uh, you don't have to come out and open up for me. I, you're you're my buddy. You're my pal. I don't. I can't see you being an opening act. But how about you just join me? I'll open the show, bring you up. You play, sing, and we'll do some some of our music that we did in Springfield and Poco, and uh, and some of the tunes which I didn't send you. Songs like "Listen to a Country Song" and "Holiday Hotel." Those are songs that I probably, if I'd have stayed with Poco, those would have been Poco songs. So I put him on those recordings as well. This is the album called In the Groove, which is what I've sent you. So Rusty is actually playing on this song. And uh, you get a sense of of the energy that he and I created when we were together in Poco. And it was just wonderful to work with him. Yeah. And he was the guy that was longest in Poco, if I remember. Am I right? He was there from the very beginning. And we started, even when you go back to Buffalo Springfield, he was there on Kind Woman in the Springfield recording of that, as as he was in the Poco recording of that song. Terrific. Okay, next one is uh, another live version, Angry Eyes. Very funky kind of version here. Tell us about this. Well, whenever you re-record a song, and it goes from date to date, time to time, musician to musician, you're going to get different interpretations. While I keep the arrangements the same, I always keep the arrangements the same so that the audiences are not disappointed. But what you're going to hear is the expression of each of the musicians who weren't there originally 
and especially on angry eyes, I allow the guys, I have a section in there once we get into the the three against four, the once we hit that, each musician is then performing off of what they learned on the first maybe eight bars, but then they go in and they start expressing themselves and then they come back to another eight bars, which is familiar, which is our transition points to the next musician, which then I always play my solo the same. I tried to change it and they go, why did you change that? I go, okay, <laughs> I'll go back and play it. But they like to hear that guitar solo for some reason, um, the way it was written. Uh, but the flute solos and sax solos are are generally, those instruments are usually played by jazz players. I mean, very seldom do we ever hear them in rock and roll until we started hearing in country Boots Randolph playing. You know, now there was that part of sax. But then, you know, you have honky tonk, you know, the nice blue stuff. But they're always sax players have this freedom that we don't normally hear on other instruments so i allow these guys to perform what how they want to perform they're brilliant players you know i'm not going to hobble them i want them i want the audiences to see who they are so you're going to hear the expression of, of say craig thomas is playing a sax on this one and then gary oliar is playing violin from new york and then i think uh, craig goes back and plays the flute solo again so um I, I love their interpretation of, of of how they performed on this. So I thought you'd get a kick out of that as well. Well, I did. And you're right. That's, the, the, to me, the right way. You can keep the framework more or less the same. But certainly the solo sections, when you got great players, they're going to do it differently each time. That's right. And there's nothing wrong with that. No. Okay. I always was very fascinated by the fact that you mentioned, you know, whether or not you keep the same arrangement or not. Dylan you know, has had this history over the years of taking these wonderful hits that everybody knows and changing them around to the point where they're almost unrecognizable. I think he's the only one that would ever get away with something like that. I haven't heard of anybody else doing it. I don't think he really got away with it. They just started accepting it. When you listen to some of the the musicians who worked with him back in those days, I remember um, the guy who was in the band, um, uh, that started working with him, the guitarist. I can't remember his name right now, but um, they were throwing shit at him. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like being in the days of the country where they throw beer bottles and crap at you because the, the arrangement sucked. In, in country music, that was never acceptable. That's why they built those cages, <laughs> chicken, <laughs> chicken wire around it. I, I don't think it was ever really acceptable. I, I don't know why he would even do that, to be honest with you, because he's such a brilliant songwriter and, you know, I never was a Dylan fan growing up. I mean, it was all over the radio, but it took me probably until 1977 to really appreciate Dylan. Uh, and I and I did it in an interesting way. I I was at the NAM show, and I hear this singer coming out of, of nowhere, and I said, that sounds like a recognizable voice. And as I walked over to it, I realized it was Bob Dylan's uh, voice. And there was a one speaker there. It looked like a large tannoy speaker. And they, they were selling speakers. And I'm listening to this and I went, oh my God, that guitar sounds so good. And it's mono. And the voice is mono. And I'm listening to him singing. And, you know, and I'm not hearing somebody singing off pitch anymore. I'm hearing 
his first record coming through here. And I realized that was really a good record. I just wasn't ready to hear it. And it was played so well. So I don't know if Dylan was just being Dylan and playing spontaneous. And then he does that later and it doesn't quite sound the same way. You know, some artists can take a stroke on something and paint a painting really quick and they go, wow, that's beautiful. You do it again. Oh, I don't like that version. They like the first one for some reason. Anything thereafter is, is uh, you know, I don't know. I, 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 maybe he doesn't have the musicality to be able to track it. I don't know. But he's so he was so brilliant on that stuff. I don't know why somebody didn't sit him down and say, look, let me just let me just help you here. We'll get this. We'll get this back together again. <laughs> Listen, I, I'm with you on this. You know, I, I, I had somebody that, you know, well, uh, Timothy B. Schmidt on podcast recently. And Timothy was talking about the Eagles. And he made the comment that the Eagles, in his opinion, will never do another album. And I said, why? He said, because all that the audience wants to hear are the hits. He said, "We, you know, you can go out on the road, you can have a new album. He says, but what they want are the hits and they want the hits exactly as they remember them. That's right. That's one of the criticisms, I guess, of rock and roll. And even it goes to some of the solos, you know, when you... When you hear while my guitar gently weeps, no matter who's playing it, everyone's copying Eric Clapton's solo. You know, that's just the way it is with rock, huh? Well, it's it's the way it is with any music. When you go back and listen to Beethoven, did anybody take that and turn it around and make it into something else? You wouldn't recognize it. It wouldn't be Beethoven. You know, Beethoven's ninth has got to be the ninth, not the eighth. Well, but that's all written down with specific notes. Now, I come from more of a jazz background. And of course, in jazz, everything is fluid. So it's almost never the same each time around. Thinking of jazz for a second, what about Desipanato? Remember that album? Of course. Okay, Stan Getz, Charlie Bird. Yep. Can you imagine the drummer playing any other part than what he played? Can you imagine Stan Getz playing anything other than bum do 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 bum 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 do 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 do? You play anything different than that? It sucks. But that's why that <laughs> that's why that album was so successful because people heard it over and over and over and over. When I went to see Stan Getz, you know what he did? He played for about five minutes and walked off the stage, and the band played the rest of it. And I said, you know, that sucks. You know, I mean, for Christ's sakes, why would you do something like that? It's an important lesson for me as an artist because I have the opportunity, fortunately. I can play all those songs that you hear as hits, You Better Think Twice, Angry Eyes, all that stuff. But I can sneak in the Mexican Minutes and I can sneak in a this and that. Why? Because I give them what they want. And then after I know that they've had most of what they want, I give them something that they should want. And now as I go back, people are saying, hey, play Whispering Waters. Hey, play Mexican Minutes. Hey, play. And you got to give them a little bit at a time. Give them what they came there to to hear and give them a little something to go away with. I'm glad to hear you say that because I agree with that. I was a little surprised when Timothy told me what I mentioned before. And you're right. You know, if you give enough of a diet of the stuff that people are thinking about and wanting to hear, you can introduce all kinds of other things. So good for you for doing that. All right, let's listen to the last of the songs that you gave me. This is You Need a Man. Sat down and 
company When I asked her to reply She looked in my eye I said, woman, I know what you need You need a man And I think this had Rusty Young on it, didn't it? Yeah, actually, uh, that that whole album had Rusty on, and in that particular song, he was on uh, that, and also Your Mama Don't Dance, which he did a great job on. But yeah, Rusty has a really wonderful solo in this uh, song. And again, this is one of those where it starts off with the song, and then I allow, especially on this song, each musician to express themselves in a different way than than if you ever heard the original one. You'll note that the music is still the same, songs, lyrics, singing. But once we get into that improvised area, it all becomes uh, very, very unique and very different. If you want to blow your mind sometime, listen to the live version of that on, um, I can't remember, it's a live album, but some of the players on that just blew my mind. The, the, the keyboard player was playing like a, a Moog synth and his part of the solo. And it just gets wild to the point it sounds almost like there's a serpent in the in the song. It's just really great. Well, listen, speaking of really great, you've put together and recorded and played really great music for your whole career. We have been talking here with uh, Jim Messina, the great Jim Messina. And I want to thank you so much for being on this podcast, Jim. It's really been an experience. My pleasure. And thank you for doing a great interview. I uh, I appreciate it very much. Well, thank you. And we're going to listen now to that song that started off the uh, interview. It's my song called The Night Was a Mystery. I want to thank you all for listening, and we will see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com.